My uh, senior year of high school, my brother and I were leaving church. Um, and as we're pulling out of the parking lot, I look down and realize my gas light is on. No big deal. We'll run by the gas station before we go home, fill up with gas. Not a thing, right? It's what you do every day. So I go to the gas station and I pump a full tank of gas. And I walk inside. I go up to the counter to pay. And I reach in my back pocket where my wallet should be. And it's, you know, then you do the, the four pocket pat down, right? Of like, okay, it's not there. Did I leave it somewhere else? And I realize in that moment, I don't have my wallet. Now, this is in the days before cell phones, right? So I can't Apple Pay. I can't text anyone. So I look at the uh, gas station attendant and I go, uh, I'm really sorry. I don't have my wallet. She goes, and she's looking at a, a high school punk kid, right? She's like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, what are you going to do? I can't pay you if I don't have my wallet. She said, well, you can use the phone and call somebody. And my, my dad was the pastor at the church. He's getting ready to preach. I can't call him. He doesn't even have a cell phone, even if I wanted to. I said, I, I appreciate the offer. I don't have anyone I can call, right, that's going to make a difference. She goes, well, what are you going to do about it? So I look at her, and I look at my car, and I look at her, and I look at my little brother sitting in my car, and I go, what if I leave my brother as collateral? <laughs> and she looks at me... And I, she can't tell if I'm joking yet or not, right? And I said, that's the only thing I can think of. So she goes, all right, we'll do it. <laughs> so I walk, I walk out to the car and I open the door and I'm like, um, you got to come inside with me. And he goes, why? I said, I forgot my wallet. You have to stay with the gas station. And he rolls his eyes. He's like, no, for real? I said, yeah, come, come with me. So we go inside. And I go, here's my little brother. He'll be here until I can come back to pay you, right? And the cashier, she's like, nah, she's annoyed, right? And understandably so. So my brother stays there and I go, it'll five minutes. I'm gonna run home, grab the wallet. I'll be back. Not a big deal. So I go home and I have no idea where my wallet is. I cannot find it. Now, two days later, I would find it in the dryer uh, after being washed and dried and ruining everything inside. At the time, I didn't know it. So I'm like tearing apart the house, tearing apart my room, can't find it. So I have to drive to church and my dad is getting ready to preach. I have to flag him down in the back of the sanctuary like, dad, like there's no good way to do that, right? So he comes back and he's like, what's up? I said, hey, uh, long story short, I left my brother at the gas station as collateral because I can't find my wallet. Can you pay for my gas? Now on a good day, this would have been a great ploy for a free tank of gas, right? But that wasn't even my intention. So he starts laughing, hands me the money. And now at this point, it's been 35 to 40 minutes, right? <laughs> So my, my brother's just like standing, and you can't make awkward small talk, right? It's like, so you ever been collateral before? Yeah, me, me either. I'm like, what do, you, what do you say? What do you do? And so at this point, you know, there's all sorts of things running through my brother's head. Where, where is he? Is he coming back? What's he doing? And, and here's the thing. When we don't understand what's going on, all sorts of those questions come to mind, right? As well as this sort of anger that's rising. So that by the time I get to the gas station, and, and I've got the money this time, I'm like, guys, I got the, like, I can pay. And neither the gas station attendant nor my brother are amused, right? They're just angry at this point. So I pay for the fuel and I walk out to my car and my brother there's like, what happened? Where were you? Why did it take? And, and he begins to ask all sorts of these questions. And there's the anger and the resentment that is like, why did you leave me there? Right now? Here's the parallel I want to draw. He begins to ask these questions and wrestle with anger because he has no idea what I'm doing. In his mind, he's going, well, you clearly didn't see this as an emergency. You took your time. You, you weren't rushing. You weren't coming through. And so he's angry. And so he's frustrated. Now, spiritually, here's what often happens. 
We're praying and asking God to work in a significant situation, maybe a season of challenge, maybe a season of struggle. And what I've often noticed is God doesn't work how I expect or in the timeline I expect. Have you felt that? And what happens is like my brother who got angry and where were you? Why didn't you come through? What took you so long? I begin to ask a similar set of questions of God. In a season challenge, I go, God, where were you? Why didn't you come through? Was this not important to you? Did you not, like, this wasn't a fun season for me, and yet, God, I don't feel like you're coming through. And just like my brother, the questions come to the surface, the anger comes to the surface. And so I want to wrestle today with this question of how do we navigate these seasons of challenge, these seasons of difficulty, and how does the crucifixion and resurrection speak into this? And so part of what I want to do is between crucifixion, Jesus' death on the cross, and the resurrection, Jesus coming back to life, between those two is a season of waiting. And the disciples in that season of waiting, they have questions, they have doubts. It is a season of significant challenge for them. And that's what I want to push into. How do we navigate that season of wondering and waiting, that season of God, why aren't you coming through, that season between crucifixion and resurrection? Mark 15, verse 25 is the account of the crucifixion. And it says this, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice uh, of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, when you read that account, that feels like anything but a victory, right? When you see Jesus on the cross crucified between two criminals, nothing about that image says victory. That looks like a picture of defeat. Particularly if you were the disciples, and we talked about this last week, the disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. They left behind businesses. They left behind family. They left behind hometowns to follow Jesus because they thought he was the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. Now, in the back of their minds, they're thinking the Messiah will lead us to an overthrow of of Rome. The Messiah will be a, a military and political leader who will lead us to victory. And then Jesus is crucified. And and they're they're mocking him, they're heaping insults on him, and it's this moment of utter defeat. And after this, you don't get a picture of the disciples going, oh yeah, we we know the prophecies, we know that Jesus is going to rise again, we know he's going to be victorious. No, what you find is the disciples scattered. What you find in John's gospel is the disciples behind a locked and closed door because it says they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. What you find is a group of followers of Jesus who are totally disheveled and totally in a place of lack of hope. And what I think is so interesting about the story of the disciples is I resonate with so much of it because there are seasons and circumstances in my life at times that feel like a moment of defeat. And in that hard season of challenge, in a season that feels like defeat, I often find myself responding like the disciples do. So here's this key idea. The cross is actually a reminder of God's power and his redemptive work, even in unexpected ways, right? The cross is not what the disciples were anticipating, but it's a reminder of God's power and of his redemptive work, and yet it's unexpected. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with in the middle of this is how do we navigate hard seasons of challenge when God often works in ways that we don't expect? 
And, and the tension that I feel in that question is often just because I don't see or feel God at work and just because I don't understand what he's doing, I often go, well, that means God's not here. And yet what I found in retrospect, as I look back and reflect, God was there and he was present in my challenging circumstances. He was just working and moving in ways that I didn't anticipate. And yet in the middle of that, I often find myself disoriented, doubt-filled, angry, frustrated, and resentful with how I feel like God has abandoned me. Do you feel that? Have you experienced that? Luke 24, the challenge of difficult seasons. Here we pick up a case study of two of those disciples after the crucifixion, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know these things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, <clears throat> Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. <clears throat> How about now? I did it the reverse. I coughed into the mic and turned it off when I needed <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, verse 29 uh, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So he, here's these two disciples who uh, are in a place where they're discouraged and they've lost faith. Now, what's interesting is this is actually after the resurrection of Jesus has taken place because they have heard the report of the empty tomb. What's interesting is even though they've heard the report of the empty tomb in Jerusalem, did you notice that they're walking away from Jerusalem? Now, let me ask you a question. If you watch Jesus be crucified right outside of Jerusalem and you'd heard a report that Jesus has risen, wouldn't you want to stay in Jerusalem to see Jesus? Wouldn't you want to stay in Jerusalem to go, oh, it's just getting good. Jesus has come back to life just like he said he would. You would be excited to see what's going to take place. The sense that you get from these two disciples is they are walking away from Jerusalem because there's nothing for them there, so they think. They fully believe that Jesus was crucified and that all hope is lost. And they are walking away from Jerusalem because that is a place where they feel defeated. That is a place that holds nothing for them, so they think. Now, as they're walking away from Jerusalem, it says that the two of them, they're, they're talking about what had happened and you can imagine what they're processing. 
I mean, we, we left families and we left jobs and like we saw him cruise. I mean, you can imagine what they're wrestling with. And now the text tells us, and, and here's the beauty of, of Luke's uh, account, right? Is Luke lets the, you and I as the reader, we're in on the joke, so to speak, right? Jesus comes and walks among them. It says the disciples, they don't recognize him, but we as the reader, we know it's Jesus. And so we have the sense of anticipation and Jesus comes and walks with them. And, and he asks this question. He says, uh, what are you talking about? Now notice when he asked this question, notice their response in uh, verse 17. When Jesus asked this question, it says, they stood still, their faces downcast. They're so discouraged that when Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? They literally stop and their faces are downcast. That question brings them right back into the pain of defeat, brings them right back into that moment of watching Jesus be crucified. And so they're navigating on the one hand, their grief of losing someone they cared about, navigating on the other hand, the disappointment of of this seeming defeat, and it stops them in their tracks. And did you notice the one disciple who goes, you've got to be the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened. It, it is all over the place. He can't believe that this man, he doesn't know it's Jesus, doesn't know. And, and church, what I find so interesting about this is the response of the disciples often mirrors our own response. Th- these are the challenges of difficult seasons. Number one, I think in difficult seasons, we're tempted to lose hope. And I would suggest to you that these two disciples are in a place where they have lost hope. And I say this for two reasons. Number one, in verse 13, they're walking away from Jerusalem. Secondly, when Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? You see the defeat. But third, in verse 21, listen to what they say. They say, but we had hoped. Did, did you notice the past tense? They don't say, we hope in Jesus. We hope in the resurrection. They go, no, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. That's, they don't hope anymore. We used to hope, but we don't any longer because we saw him crucified. And church, what I've noticed is that in challenging and difficult seasons, I'm pretty quick like the disciples to lose hope. I'm pretty quick to go, God, I don't see you at work. I don't sense your presence. I don't see what you're doing. God, are you even here? And maybe you've been up against a situation, a season, a circumstance in your life that feels hopeless. This is where the disciples were at. They didn't see a way out. They didn't see a way through. And they're going, What happened? Why why did Jesus leave us and abandon us in this place of what feels like defeat? And it's pretty easy sometimes, church, in a challenging moment to lose hope. Now what happens is when they lose hope, they become blind to God's presence. And this happens in a couple ways. Number one, in verse 16, Jesus comes and walks up next to him. It says, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus is literally in their presence and they don't recognize that he's present with them. But secondly, look how else they become blind to his presence. In verse 19, Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And they said about Jesus of Nazareth, catch this, he was a prophet. Notice they don't say he was the Messiah. They don't say that he was God in the flesh. They go, yeah, he was a prophet. Do you see how they're blind to the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do? And then they proceed to tell Jesus, yeah, we saw him be crucified. And here's what it is, church. The disciples can't imagine a scenario in which God brings victory through the cross. They're going, if Jesus was the Messiah, he would go to victory, not the cross. And so the cross cannot be a symbol of of the Messiah, can it? That's where they're losing hope. And that's where they become blind to God's presence. And listen, church, often in our seasons of challenge, often in our circumstances that, that feel like a moment of defeat, we go, God, I don't see how you can work in this. And when God doesn't show up in our timing, in the way that we expect, we often become blind to how God is working because we assume he's not there. 
because he didn't answer our prayer in the way that we wanted, in the timing that we wanted. And so what happens is we lose hope, we become blind to his presence, but thirdly, we begin to doubt God's power, plan, and purpose. Right? Notice again what happens in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day. Meaning, by the third day, the body would start to decompose. Meaning, they haven't seen Jesus yet. And if it was going to happen, wouldn't it be today? It's the third day and we haven't seen anything yet. And so what they're saying is this plan and purpose that Jesus, the Messiah, had proclaimed, it clearly hasn't come to be. And, and maybe you've had a similar circumstance, a challenging season where you've lost hope because you didn't see and feel how God was going to bring victory and bring redemption. And so we're quick to lose hope, to become blind to his presence and to doubt that God is capable to do what he promised. And, and, and here's what I wrestle with. In, in seasons of challenge, as, as I'm praying about like, God, would you, here's my honest prayer. Often I pray, God, would you just take this away? With this challenge, this circumstance, this place where I feel, God, would you just take it away? And sometimes what I find is God says, I'm not going to deliver you from it. I'm going to deliver you through it. And to be honest, church, I just don't like that. I don't. Do you? I go, God, can, can, can you just deliver me from it? And I don't understand why, but the question is, will you trust God's purpose when he says, no, I'm not going to deliver you from it, but I'll deliver you through it. I will grace you and I will empower you with the same kind of resurrection power that brought Jesus from the dead with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. I will empower you to get through it. And I go, yeah, but that's not what I want. Can you just take it from me? And so sometimes what happens is God is saying, I'm going to empower you to get through this moment. And because he's not taking it from me, I doubt his presence. I doubt his power and I doubt his plan and purpose and provision in my life in that moment. When it's precisely what God is leading me through for my maturity, for my growth, for my good. And yet I'm saying, God, take it from me. Now, really what it is, is like the disciples have lost perspective, their, their image of the Messiah is shaped by their uh, hopes and dreams, not by the truth of scripture. So there, there are two key things in navigating these difficult seasons that become really important for regaining perspective. Number one, correction and conviction can be a gift. Do, do you notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 25? I mean, they're, they're clearly defeated. They're, they're clearly discouraged. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And part of me is like, well, that doesn't feel very compassionate. You know, I, it's like, I, what I want is like, you know, Jesus to put an arm around and be like, hey guys, it's okay, we'll get through it. Instead, he looks at him and he goes, you guys, you still don't get it, do you? And, and there, there is, in Jesus' words, a sort of rebuke to the disciples. You still aren't seeing the Messiah through the lens of God's truth. You aren't seeing what's happening through the lens of Scripture. And listen, church, when our perspective is distorted and we're going, God's not present, he's not here, he's not working, what we need is someone to call us back to the truth of Scripture to say, you're seeing it through your expectations, you're seeing it through your eyes, not the lens of God's truth. We need a perspective readjustment. And that's what Jesus does here, Right? He goes, you, you still don't see it. He goes, look at the truth of scripture. So correction and conviction are gift number two. We have to be rooted in God's word, ways, and wisdom. Notice what Jesus does as he responds to them. He says, how foolish you are and slow to believe, verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And then enter his glory. What he's saying is, this is what scripture said. Verse 27, it says, and beginning with Moses, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. Jesus goes, all right, let's go back. And he brought them into the truth of scripture. 
And so church, in in challenging seasons, in the difficult moments that feel like defeat, we have to be rooted in the truth, in the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus as found in scripture. And yet there's still that reality that the disciples have to navigate a hard season that feels like defeat. Which brings us back to the tension of the cross. And where the cross feels like a moment of defeat, we're looking now 2,000 years later going, no, that was actually the moment of victory. And, And here's what I want to bring us into next, church, is that the cross, and in particular, Jesus' words on the cross, actually give us hope. It is the cross that points us to the victory of God. It is in the cross that God, in ways that the disciples didn't understand at the time, was actually bringing victory. And so what felt like a moment of defeat was actually God perfectly unfolding his plan and purpose. So let's look at how Jesus' words on the cross actually point us to hope. Mark 15. This is the end of the crucifixion story. Mark 15, 33 and 34. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at first blush, even Jesus' words, we go, has Jesus lost hope? What's happening? Why is Jesus, the son of God, crying out, God, you've forsaken me? Now, I think there's a couple things happening here. Number one, Jesus encountered real suffering that was incredibly difficult, that was incredibly painful, that was incredibly demeaning and shame-filled in terms of hanging naked on a cross. Secondly, Jesus is feeling the weight of the sins of the world. But here's the most important thing, is that Jesus is actually here quoting and fulfilling Psalm 22. And to understand Jesus' last words on the cross, you have to go to Psalm 22 and understand that text to say what Jesus is crying out here is actually a declaration of God's victory. So Jesus' last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are actually an affirmation of God's power, presence, purpose, and provision. Let me take us to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse one, this is David writing. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Yet you were enthroned as the Holy One. You were the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth has dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, packs of villain encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So let me pause there. The first half of that's a tough psalm to read. 
It, it is a psalm of suffering. It is a psalm, why have you forsaken me? God, why are you not here? Do you not hear my cries for help? I am being ashamed and I am being opposed. And you, you can feel the tension and the weight of what David is, is wrestling with. And yet in verse 19, everything begins to change. Verse 22, there's a distinct shift in the tone of the psalm. Let, let me begin in verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. Rescue me from the mouths of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Here, David shifts from... I feel like God has forgotten me. Now he says, I'm beginning to praise because God has come through. Listen to the tone of the Psalm change. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about him. They will proclaim in his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And so Psalm 22 starts with this cry of God, why have you forsaken me? That is David pulling us into the tension of suffering. And yet it crescendos in this place of saying, of David declaring, God has done it. God has fulfilled his purpose. Now, what's interesting is that on the cross, Jesus quotes the beginning of Psalm 22. And, and somebody asked me, well, why didn't Jesus just quote the whole Psalm? Listen, church, death on the cross is almost universally death by asphyxiation. As you're hanging on the cross and as the, the, the legs begin to weaken, the diaphragm begins to collapse and fill with fluid. In order to speak, one had to push themselves up to get enough space to take a breath. Literally, Jesus has one moment to speak. And what he says is pay attention to Psalm 22. He couldn't quote the whole psalm. There wasn't the strength. There wasn't the breath. And so he quotes Psalm 22, pointing us to the truth of what David says. Yes, it starts in suffering, but it ends in deliverance. Yes, it starts in defeat, but it ends in victory. In fact, let, let me put up this chart for us. If you overlay Psalm 22 onto the gospel accounts, the gospel writers themselves, not only does Jesus quote Psalm 22, but the, the, the writers of the gospel point us to Psalm 22. Verse 18 says, they divided my garments among them. Look at the gospel accounts. Matthew, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. Mark, casting lots. Luke, it, it's a direct overlay of Psalm 22, meaning that Psalm 22 finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Alan, if you want to switch to that next one. I'm not going to walk through all of these because there's not time, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quotes in Matthew and Mark. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews pulls in this quote to say that this is what Jesus comes to fulfill. Psalm 22:31. 31, they will, shall come and proclaim his righteousness. John says when he had received sour wine, he said, it's finished. All, all of these references to Psalm 22 are all over the gospel accounts, meaning the gospels point us to the truth of Psalm 22 that ends with this crescendo of he has done it. God has been victorious. Now, the religious leaders of the day who would have been standing at the crucifixion, they would have had Psalm 22 memorized. As soon as Jesus quotes that, they know what's going on. Here's what I want us to remind us of, church. Regaining perspective in the hard season of seeming defeat, we have to focus on the truth of what Psalm 22 tells us. The psalmist, he moves from this place of hopelessness to being hopeful, noting the truth, number one, of God's presence. Notice what he says in verse 24. 
For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. Catch this. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And and this is part of what Jesus is acknowledging on the cross. This is part of what is prophetically being fulfilled in, in the gospel narratives of the crucifixion. It's not that God forgot his son on the cross. No, no, God is aware this is all part of his purpose. And church, listen, in our seasons of suffering, we have to hold to the truth of Psalm 22, verse 24, that God has not turned his face from us. And yet when I encounter hardship, I go, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this? And yet in the mystery of how God works, I have to accept, God, here I am, and I trust that you have not forgotten me, that you are present with me. And that's part of what Jesus affirms as he points us back to the the truth of Psalm 22. Not only are we reminded of God's presence, but we're reminded of God's provision. Look at verse 26. It says, the poor will eat and be satisfied, testifying to God's provision. It says, those who seek the Lord will praise him, meaning that those who seek him, they'll find him and they'll offer him praise, meaning God has not abandoned you. Again, it affirms God's presence, but it also affirms God's provision. Those who are in need will be fulfilled. Those who are hungry, God will give you to eat. Those who are searching for him, you'll find him. God will reveal himself to you. And so it's this reminder that not only in our season of defeat, not only is God present, but God promises provision. Again, the challenge, church, is I want provision to look like I want it. And yet I have to trust that even if it looks different than I expect, that God is providing in the way that he deems best. Do do you see how much of this comes down to trust, surrender, and faith? What I want is for God to give me things in such a way that I don't need to trust him. Take away the challenge, take away the hardship, deliver me from out of those things, make it easy. And yet God goes, nope, I'm going to deliver you through and I'm going to give you enough grace that you need to depend on me and trust me. But my presence is there, my provision is there, but you need me. Psalm 22 reminds us not only of God's presence, not only of his provision, but of his power. Look at verse 28. It says, all the families of the nations will bow down before, before him. And let, let me say this, right? Jesus is on the cross. He's being crucified. The religious leaders and the Roman soldiers are there gloating. They're mocking him. They're casting lots. Literally at one point they say, oh, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Listen, church, when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, did you listen to that? All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. As Jesus points us to Psalm 22, right? It's a moment that seems like defeat, but Jesus is saying, one day you will bow down before God. The final victory is not over. Verse 28, for dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. This is again an affirmation of God's power. When it seems like God has been defeated on the cross, actually it's a declaration of his power. God is still in control. And here's the challenge. In our difficult seasons where we feel defeated, where we feel challenged, often I go, God, are you not powerful enough to take this away? And yet Jesus affirms that his being on the cross is precisely where he's supposed to be. And in fact, God still has dominion. In church, sometimes in a hard season, I have to remind myself, Lord, I trust that you have dominion. I trust that you still have power. And even if I don't understand it, I have to trust your purpose in it. And this is, I think, where the psalmist leaves us with a reminder of God's purpose in verse 30 and 31. It says, future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteous, righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. 
do, do you see the crescendo of this psalm? From my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To at the very end, the psalmist, and by the way, it's emphatic. The psalmist is yelling, God has done it. God has been victorious. And so again, when Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22, he's not saying God has forsaken me. He's saying, no, no, no. At the end of the story is that God has done it. He's accomplished his purpose. And church, what we need to trust and believe is that in our hard seasons, in the places of challenge, in the places that feel like defeat, that God is still present, that his power is still capable, and that God is bringing his plan and purpose to fruition. And that again is a moment of trust and a moment of surrender because it often looks so different than I anticipated. So two key truths in the middle of this. Number one, no situation is beyond God's ability to redeem. Again, I'm not saying that God delivers us. What I want is for God to resolve it. And God says, no, I'm going to send you through it and redeem it in the end. I don't always like that. The second truth, though, that I think is really important to grasp here is that God is righteous. Listen to how the psalmist says this, right? He says in, uh, in verse uh, 30 and 31, he says, they will proclaim his righteousness. By God's righteousness, what we mean is that his action, his treatment of us is right, just, and true. And so if I'm going to proclaim God's righteousness, what I have to trust and believe is that even in a difficult season, even in the moment between crucifixion and resurrection, that God is working in a way that is just and right and true to his word. So how are you, church? In that place where the circumstances feel overwhelming, can you trust God's power, God's presence, God's provision, his plan? I want to leave us with four application points. I'm going to hit these quick. Number one, root your life in the truth in the truth of God's word. And what I mean by this is it's so easy for our perspectives to get skewed. And what we need to come back is to anchor in the word. So much of my perception of what I want God to do is can be influenced by culture, right? I want God to provide a way. I want him to make it easy. I want him to make it simple. And yet God says, no, I want to form and shape you and I'm not going to resolve it. I'm going to send you through it. And yet in that, I have to be rooted in the truth of God's word to hold fast to who God is and who he claims to be and what his purpose is for me. So root your life in the truth of God's word. Number two, praise anyway. In the middle of challenging circumstances, continue to praise God anyway. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 22, verse 23. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Now, 10 verses ago, he was saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's going, go and praise him, revere him, honor him. In church, what happens is when we're in a season of challenge, our circumstances feel pretty big. And what I've noticed is when I focus on the challenging circumstance, my circumstance feels big and God starts to feel small. And what happens is when I begin to praise God anyway, and I, I praise God for who he is and what he's done, God becomes a right perspective, rooted in his truth, praising him. And suddenly I realize how powerful God is and how small my circumstances are. Because I'm rooted in what David says, God has dominion, nations bow down to him. And if God has dominion, if he rules over the world, God is Lord of my circumstances. And as I praise him, that reorientation of perspective puts my circumstances in proper light. Number three, Remember past provision. In verse three and four, David reminds us that in, our, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered. You delivered them. And church, I think sometimes in, in the challenge of the present moment, I forget what God has done in the past. And I go, God, why are you not redeeming this? Why are you not bringing me through this? And, and I begin to doubt and question and I lose sight of all the other things God has done in my life. When we praise him and when we remember his deliverance in the past, what happens is we start to see hope in the present. 
Because the God who delivered us then is capable of delivering us now. And finally, church, I think we have to press forward in hope. The hope of 2231, God has done it. Do you believe that in your circumstance, in your situation, that God is powerful and capable and can bring it through to a place of victory? Maybe not like we want, but for sure like we need. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And and I thank you for the the real life example of the disciples who in their moment between crucifixion and resurrection, they're struggling with hope, they're struggling with their faith. And yet, Father, so many of us can resonate with that. In our situations that feel like defeat, it's easy to throw up our hands and go, God, where are you? Are you not here? Do you not care? And yet the truth of Psalm 22 is that you've done it. You've conquered, you've overcome. And Jesus, what you declare on the cross is the crescendo of Psalm 22. God has done it. And so I pray, Father, in our circumstances, in our situations, where we see a dead end, Lord, would you make a way? Where we see a place of hopelessness, would you remind us that you were capable, that the God who brought victory through the cross in the past can bring redemption and deliverance in our hard moments right here, right now. And God, even if you choose not to deliver us out, but to empower us to deliver us through a challenging circumstance, Lord, would you grace us to trust you because father like it said in scripture we believe but lord help our unbelief would you grace us to hang tight to your words of truth to trust that even when it seems unlikely that you can redeem all things and that you were capable may we look to the truth of the cross and the hope of the resurrection as a reminder that you have dominion and our god has done it In Jesus' name, amen.